we got out and started walking around and um, there was nothing I could really guide. I, I was mostly just a mage watching the um, seals, watching the environment, but also watching the people and how excited they were. After this whole experience, we got back in the helicopter and we lift off and we start heading back. And I look at the two sisters and I'm knee to knee to them in the back of a helicopter and they've got tears in their eyes. They're crying, so happy that they've gotten a chance towards the waning years of their lives to see these baby seals. That was the moment I realized this is what I want to do. Hi, folks. I'm Connor Gaughan, and welcome to Consensus in Conversation, a podcast where we're talking to the innovators, entrepreneurs, and thought leaders who are committed to building successful businesses that also help us build a better world. This week's episode is a really special one because we're diving into a topic that's near and dear to my own heart, travel. I absolutely love to travel. I love seeing new places, experiencing new things, trying new flavors, meeting new people, maybe making new friends. But there's also a deeper meaning and importance to the experiences we have when we set out beyond the bounds of the familiar. When we expand our horizons, we expand ourselves. In the words of a very prodigious American traveler, Mark Twain, travel is fatal to prejudice, bigotry, and narrow-mindedness. Broad, wholesome, charitable views of men and things cannot be acquired by vegetating in one little corner of the earth all one's lifetime. Well, the last few years, we've all been forced to vegetate in our own little corners a little bit, and it's given us plenty of time to reflect on traveling. Not just the places we wanted to go when the world would open back up, but also the way we wanted to engage with the world. What does it mean to be a good traveler? How can we make tourism an additive force? And how can we make a positive impact on the world's most amazing places the same way that they make a positive impact on us? Our guest this week is a leader who's devoted his career to answering those questions, and along the way, he's become a true pioneer in the tourism industry. Ben Bressler is the founder and president of Natural Habitat Adventures, a leading conservation travel company that specializes in intimate guided wildlife adventures in some of the world's most pristine wilderness. As the official travel partner of the World Wildlife Foundation, they're also a leading innovator in sustainable travel, from being the first 100% carbon neutral travel company to designing a zero-waste expedition to simply making sure that the tourist money goes to supporting local communities. If there's a way for travelers to help make a difference, you bet they're at the forefront. Plus, Ben's a total bootstrap founder, an entrepreneur with amazing wealth of knowledge and experience about what it takes to build a business from nothing but a phone and a dream. We're super excited and grateful to have him join us today. So without further ado, let's jump right in. Tell us about yourself, Ben. Where are you from? Well, I grew up in New Jersey, which is uh, an unlikely place to be from should you start a nature travel company. <laughs> There's nature everywhere, right? Even in Jersey. There is. I, I mean, you have to find those pockets, but when you're six or eight or 10 years old, there's a ton of it. Was was nature and being outdoors a big part of, of your upbringing? Well, yeah, absolutely. I mean, I was born in 1962, which uh, every time I say that, it seems to get further and further away. But, you know, growing up in the, in the uh, late 60s and 70s, and the Northeast, I mean, we ran wild. We were like wild dogs, yeah. you know. Our our parents were like, be back at 6 p.m. And, of course, we never were. But there was <laughs> nobody checking. We had a bicycle, and we'd just go. And so where we went was outdoors. And when we were inside, our parents, our mothers would say, go outside. <laughs> they wanted to get, rid of it. <laughs> get out of here. Get out of the house. Yeah. So that freedom, you know, to be outside, it was a... Uh, was um, natural back then. I don't see it now. I think uh, it is a little different uh, now, for sure. Did you have any sense for what you wanted to be when you grew up, or was there 
any seeds of a future entrepreneur or a future traveler back when you were a kid, or was that all much, much later in life? Uh, it's a good question. Um, one thing I knew I didn't want to be was a lawyer. Um, my, my dad was a lawyer. My mom was a lawyer. My cousins are lawyers. My brother's a lawyer. Everybody's a lawyer. So yeah, I'm yeah. pretty sure I didn't want to be a lawyer. I knew I'd need one at some point. But we uh, all do. I, yeah. <laughs> I, yeah, no, I, travel was something that was important to my family. My mother was um, a really big traveler. You know, we we'd have weekends in Pennsylvania, Dutch country, and and my brother and I would be playing in the pool and she'd be dragging us to Civil War reenactments and all sorts of stuff that we hated, but we travel on this little uh, New Jersey 1960s and 70s road trips, and it was it was fantastic. But then we did travel, you know, overseas as well, and got a chance to see some pretty cool stuff as a as a young fella. Um, so whether I thought I was going into the travel business or not, it uh, definitely influenced me. Do you have a sense for whether it was from her perspective or, or even yours as a, as a child as you grew up? why travel was so important to her and why it became so important to you, the, those experiences? Um, I, I actually have made a, a guess on this. So she grew up to Russian immigrant parents in, in Brooklyn and she left for college at age 16. I sort of just uh, hypothesized that she just wanted to get the hell out of Brooklyn. You know, maybe her mom was a little tough. Um, so for her, travel was this great escape. But ever since I was a kid, you know, my brother and I would be beating the hell out of each other. And she'd be in the back room reading travel magazines, Europe on five yeah. ten dollars a day or whatever it is, you know. Yeah. So I just blamed it on her mother when the fact is she probably just wanted to get away from us. <laughs> <laughs> so where'd you end up going to school then? So I ended up going to Skidmore College in Saratoga, New York. And what did you study when you were there? What was the where did you think you were going to end up in a career at that point? I was a government major. Um, and uh, I have to say, I was not a very good student. I was a terrible student. And I didn't really go to class very much. We, I don't know if you've ever been to Saratoga, New York, but there's like 350 bars in, you know, three blocks, right? Yeah. <laughs> and so it was, you know, this was, again, you know, early 80s. This was 80 through 84. And so, you know, we mostly, we played soccer. We skied, we went biking, we did great stuff outdoors. And then we uh, went to the bars and, and uh, sort of made our way through college, you know. Any favorite classes that, that stuck out? Yeah, there <laughs> I took history of sports. I took a lot of gym classes. Uh, no, I really was not a very good student. But one thing that, um, you know, I, I did get out of school um, was I had an on-campus job running the intramural programs. And during the, um, you know, long lectures, if I were to go, I would have a legal pad out making schedules and figuring out, you know, who was going to ref this game and what schedule was that. Yeah. And it's very much um, what we do when we're putting together trips all over the world. If we're moving 1,600 people over 45-day period to go see polar bears, you need a, a spreadsheet. This was my early iterations of spreadsheets. Yep. It's funny. I, I think that I certainly found this to be the case in in college and then as I looked back, there are actually quite a few vocational skills that you get that you have no idea that you're picking up as vocational skills along the way, whether it's scheduling folks on a you know giant legal pad or figuring out how to get people to show up at the, you know, fall formal. You know, there, there's all these things like actually have real professional implications 10, 20 years down the road. And you never, I don't think we value that as much as we probably ought to. Yeah. And it's funny you say that because I told my own son when he went off to Colorado College um, about seven years ago, I said to him, look, you know, make sure that uh, not everything is a classes. Make sure you're learning. You're meeting lots of people learning in a lot of different ways. If 
but I do want to tell you, if you don't get good grades, you're out. And he's like, dad, <laughs> but you didn't get good grades. I'm like, yeah, it was cheap to go to school when I went. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> so you graduate and end up in your first career, your first job out of college doing what? Well, I graduated from college and, uh, you know, the bottom of my class, so I became a, a teacher. And I, I say that tongue in cheek, teaching is the hardest. I really believe this. It's the hardest uh, profession on the planet. People who are good teachers are highly skilled and uh, undercompensated and really, yep. really care. I was not one of those people. I was undercompensated, but probably I, I earned $5,000 in a year my first year of teaching. And I think I was overcompensated. As soon as the kids showed up and <laughs> they were all over me because they knew, I mean, I wasn't that much older than them and they, they knew that to take advantage of me immediately. By November of that first year, I was already fired. So they gave me a letter that said, you know, we'll let you finish out the year, but you're not coming back. And that was pretty upsetting to me. It was really upsetting to me. And, um, you know, I pretended I was fine with that. But at, the, at that time, I vowed, I don't think I'm going to work for somebody else anymore. I'm going to do this on my own. I don't want to be fired again. But in the spring, they let me take this group of kids, me and another teacher, to Vail. And we did a week of skiing. With, there's no classroom. I mean, there was no headmaster telling me to straighten my tie or any of that sort of stuff. I didn't have to be in a in a class. And the kids, we took them to McDonald's and we you know, would swim in that little indoor pool at the motel we were at. And, and we skied and we had a great time. I think some of those kids went off and were buying beer and whatnot. But, uh, you know, I didn't see it. Uh, I, I do know that the other teacher and I were. Um, but uh yeah at the end of that trip i earned 500 dollars. there was 500 dollars left over and the parents had keep that as a fee for taking our kids skiing and i'm like oh my gosh i i earned 500 dollars in a month of teaching and i got in a week of being outdoors with these kids and that's when there was an epiphany is i've got to start something a travel company and i will tell you what happened is on the way home from that trip, I have 500 bucks in my pocket. I never had $500 in my pocket. You know, this is 1985 and, and yeah. um, I'm feeling pretty emboldened and I'm leafing through it. It was Continental Airlines uh, magazine and there's an ad for a ski tour company. And there are these beautiful people with red jackets and smiles and they're skiing and, and there's beautiful sunny skies. And, and I'm like, that's when it occurred to me that people were making money. They had a living of taking people skiing. And I thought, well, I just sort of did that. For a second, I thought, well, why don't I apply for a job at one of those companies? Then I remembered it didn't go well, my first job out of college. So um, that's when I said, I'm, I'm going to start my own thing. And, and on the back of a little cocktail napkin on Continental Airlines from Denver to Boston, I sketched out how it would work this thing um, to take students and teachers on ski, rafting, hiking, just outdoor adventure trips. So you've got your cocktail napkin plan. How did you then go and actually put that plan into action? Yeah. Well, I mean, for the rest of the school year, I, I spent most of the time in the library looking up destinations and, and how it would work. And I, I would um, wake up in the morning and take notes on all the things I thought about at night about how to get this business started. And then when I, I uh, finished out the year, I was uh, living at my parents' house in New Jersey, and I realized I'm going to need $1,000 to start this business. And, and by that time, I had nothing. Um, so I was cutting lawns, you know, I painted a side of a house with a buddy of mine, washed some windows and whatnot. After, uh, let's say, June, I only had a couple hundred bucks. And then a buddy of mine called me and his family owned Action Park, which is in New Jersey. And people might remember it because right now there's a documentary out on HBO Max or Netflix or something. Uh, I think it's called uh, Class Action Park. It's the world's most dangerous amusement park. 
it was a park where you took your own control of the rides. There weren't roller coasters or teacups. It was things like bungee jumping or or mini Formula One cars. There was the Alpine slide. It was the first one. And and there's signs up top that said, you know, if you don't, if you go fast, you can hurt yourself. But people would go fast and they'd fly off the track or slide down the cement. So people were getting hurt all over the place. And uh, I'll tell you right now, when I run into people and they ask me how I got the company started, and I say, I worked at Action Park. If they're a middle-aged man, they go, they start to give a list of, oh, I've been there. I broke this. I sprained that. I did this and this. And they end with, it was the best time of my life. (laughs) Because that's what it is, you know? Um, And so he called me and said, hey, you want a job driving a garbage truck at Action Park? I'm like, I'm in. So I went there and I stayed um, up near the park and I, every day at 6 a.m., go uh, and drive a garbage truck there. And I made, uh, I think, two fifty an hour, $3 an hour or something like that. And at the end of that summer, I um, had $600, didn't quite reach the 1000 that I had hoped for. And what were you thinking in terms of how you'd get your first clients or customers or where'd you go from there? Well, so I, I touched up a little brochure. But uh, I didn't have the 600, didn't quite pay for the printing of a brochure. So I went to my dad's basement and my, my parents were, my parents were very interesting people, um, liberals in the 60s and 70s who very much were in support of civil rights and against the Vietnam War. And so they would march in Washington every weekend. It was something to protest. There was always meetings at our house. I just remember a house filled with meetings and cookies and smoke and scotch. And it was all everybody's up in arms about the war and I'm eight years old. I just want some damn cookies, you know? Um, (laughs) And so my dad had a printing press in his basement. It was a mimeograph machine. Only my dad would print enough mimeographs to have his own machine in the basement, you know? And so I went to their house and I fired that old thing up and typed up the brochure and and fired up, got ink all over the place. And and these things look terrible, but I folded them myself and And I decided I would drive around. I didn't have the money for postage. So I drove around the Northeast and I delivered them to prep schools, figuring boarding schools, prep schools, or the kids would have the money to go on these trips. And most of them, I'm sure, ended up thrown away. But some of the receptionists put them in the the little, um, you know, mailboxes for the teachers. And and so I probably dropped off, oh, two or 3,000 of those brochures at 50 or 100 schools and hoping that the phone would start ringing. And uh, of course, I had to go back and, and get an office with a phone. Um, I didn't want to sit in my yep. parents' kitchen taking phone calls. So I made a deal with a travel agency in New York City that um, I would give them 10% of all the revenues if um, I could have a desk there. The guy gave me a desk and a telephone. And and so I went back and I sat there waiting for the phone to ring. And uh, it uh, it did not ring. <laughs> but I read the New York Times and had a good time looking at travel magazines for weeks upon weeks. So you're sitting in this office, this travel agency in New York City. Phones doesn't work. The ringer doesn't seem to be working correctly. It's no, no one's getting through. Was there any moments at which you thought, okay, what am I doing here? Yeah, those moments as an entrepreneur, they take 20 years to get rid of. Um, yeah. You know, what's going on? And this thing can implode at any second. I'm beyond them now, but uh, those, those go on. Yeah, for sure. I didn't know if this thing would work, but I also knew I had, uh, you know, I was in a great position. I was 22 years old. Uh, I had nothing to lose. I was living on my brother's floor of his apartment in 81st, 89th and 1st. Uh, he was a lawyer in the city and he let me eat his leftovers. And and I'd get down to that office because he'd let me take the change from his change drawer. I couldn't take quarters because he needed that for 
for his laundry, but I could take yeah. dimes, nickels, and pennies. And I will tell you something. People ask me the most dangerous thing I've done on adventure travel, and I tell them the most dangerous thing I've ever done was you try getting on a New York City subway at rush hour and get online to get a token, uh, counting out pennies with 40 New Yorkers behind you trying to get their, get on their subway. Uh, so that's pretty dangerous. But, uh, you know, so I had nothing to lose. So in that regard, I was in a pretty good spot. You know, I, I at that point, I had to realize, you know, that of course, it wasn't going to work. What, what's next? I, I wasn't too down about it not working, but I knew that I had to find something else to do to right. get the phone to ring, you know, or to, or to get contact with teachers to bring these groups. So what were the other pathways that you began to explore? Well, I mean, I knew that I, I needed to cold call them. But I needed yeah. a list of teachers, um, and I couldn't go buy a list of teachers. I actually went up to the um, New York City Public Library, one of the largest libraries in the world, figuring there's got to be something in there. And I, uh, I, I, I spent hours looking, and I finally found this periodical, this thick book that had, believe it or not, every name of every private school teacher in the country listed by state, and it also had their phone number. Um, I couldn't believe it when I found this thing. And so I took out my legal pad and started writing down. Um, each one of their names and their phone numbers. Um, I mean, but there were thousands. And, uh, you know, after I got through, I think, Alabama, I said, you know, screw this. I, I, I couldn't afford photocopying because that was a nickel or a dime each page. Right. So I, I, um, I, my hand was cramping. So I'm, I'm out of here. So I just, I stole the book. I did return it maybe a year or so later. Um, but uh, I did walk out with the um, giant periodical tucked under my dad's old dirty raincoat. Um, out of the New York City Public Library. Didn't that, did that yield big sales? Well, I mean, big sales is sort of relative, but what I did was I, <laughs> I sat at that um, desk and I, I made a, um, a game with myself, a rule that I had to make 100 phone calls a day to teachers. Um, and, uh, you know, the vast majority weren't answering and, and not everybody had answering machines. So um, no matter whether they answered, whether I got the machine or they didn't answer, I had to make 100. Um, and invariably, I would probably talk to two or three teachers a week that would give me somewhere between 15 to 45 seconds. One of them maybe would have a full discussion with me about it. You know, they were very awkward conversations at, at first. I didn't know what I was talking about in terms of the products. I didn't know right. how to sell. I had never had a business meeting. Um, but, you know, after a while, I got the wrap down a little bit. And, you know, it was a great deal for teachers. Teachers love to travel. Teachers don't earn a lot of money and they get to go on a free trip if they brought just six students. I spent the whole fall doing that. And by the wintertime, I had six groups booked. And that means that each teacher, when they do, when they were to make the contract with me, they had to send me just $100. And then the kids would send $100 each, right? And then yep. I would give that 100 back. And, you know, within a three, four, five months, I ended up with a couple thousand dollars in my bank account. I couldn't believe it. Couldn't believe people were sending me checks to go on trips. Of course, I had no idea what to do with that money or how to put the trip together. At some point, you you get the big sale that I've read a ton about. It, it seems like the sale that really crystallized what the business was going to be for you through the International Fund for Animal Welfare. Yeah, I mean, you've spoken at length about this, you know, a ton. I know, but the story is just so profound, even as a reader. So I, I can't imagine what it was like to experience it. And I'm wondering if you could tell us about that particular trip. Yeah, yeah. I mean, it's an incredible, incredible history to the baby harp seal hunt. And, and if listeners you know what a baby harp seal is, I mean, you can think of the big black teary eyes and the 
furry white coat of these baby seals. They are the most adorable creature on the planet. They're just incredible. I had already done about two and a half years of cold calling teachers and putting these things together. And um, one day the phone just rang. And, and again, it, even then, the phone didn't ring often. And you know, it, this guy calls and tells me he's the director of development at the International Fund for Animal Welfare. And I said, okay. He says, do you know what a baby harp seal is? And I didn't, and he told me. And then he told me the history of the hunt that that in Northeast Canada for hundreds of years, you know, people would go out and hunt baby seals, starting with, you know, subsistence hunting. And then it did become a giant industry where tens of thousands, hundreds of thousands of seals were killed for their pristine white coats. But anyway, the um, in 1987, the Canadian government, after much pressure by IFAW and Greenpeace and all these organizations, the Canadian government announced the ban of the commercial hunt of white coat seals, which is pretty tremendous. I mean, it's like it's a, a cultural change to get that to happen in Canada. And so IFAW, instead of just celebrating, said, all right, this is great, but we now have to get revenue to the seal hunters. Because if you don't, they're just going to come back and reinstate the hunt and keep lobbying for that. So they wanted to start a seal watching tourism business to replace seal hunting. So this guy tells me this history, and he's, and I said, well, where does this happen? And he said, you know, in the um, Magdalene Islands. Uh, and I said, oh, where's that? Well, it's in the Gulf of St. Lawrence. Oh, where's that? Uh, well, that's just, you know, north of um, Prince Edward Island. I'm like, oh, where's that? And I, I had to stop at some point. You know, he told me to envision the main coast and keep going north and north and north, and that's where it is. And then he said, well, you know, um, what we're trying to do is create this still-watching tourist business and hire the hunters. And what we would do is you would run these trips and we would promote them. And you'd have helicopters from the hotels to take them out to the ice flows where you would walk among these hundreds of thousands of baby seals. Would you like to do that? I mean, and I was like shocked. I mean, of course I'd like to do that. I'd never been in a helicopter, never been to this area of the world. I didn't know what a baby harp seal was. Um, my adventure experience was limited to booking a bunch of students to go skiing or rafting, you know. Right. Um, so I really didn't know anything. But I'm like, yeah, yeah, I can do that. Yeah, I can do that. I could do anything according to me at that point. You know, so I was in uh, regardless of what he said. He's, he could have told me we're going to the moon. I'm like, I'm in. And so what was that trip like? Clearly different than taking a bunch of prep school kids skiing. Oh, yeah, well, you know, when he asked me if I wanted to do the uh, trip, um, he, he did tell me that there were other companies bidding for it. So I didn't think I had too much of a chance, but I did go up and meet with them. And I, I borrowed my brother's suit. He's, a, he's quite a bit bigger than I am. So, you know, I sort of rolled it up and wore a belt and, and uh, met with them. And a couple of days later, they called me and told me I got the deal. Oh my God, are you kidding me? And so at that moment, uh, from that moment forward, you know, we, I didn't have any time to do these student trips. And so what would happen was... Um, they would send out these little brochures all over the world. I would get these bookings from people in Holland and Japan and Australia and, and uh, of course, the U.S. and Canada. Then it was time to go up on that trip and I would meet people in Halifax and then take them up to Prince Edward Island or the Magdalene Islands. And, and the first time I went out, this, is, this was the big aha moment of what I wanted to do and, and this company was I was in a helicopter with these two Canadian women who were in their late 70s, I would say, and they were sisters, and they had been donating, let's say, $50 a year to help protect baby seals. And we go and we, we lift off from the island, we start heading north, and then you start to see the white ice. And it's just as far as you can see, 
is white sea ice. And as you're going, you're going, you're going, it's beautiful. And these two sisters are hugging each other and they're so excited. And then you look down, you start to see little dots and those dots are the mother seals. And there's more dots and more dots and more dots as you go further north. And as you start to descend, you see next to those dots are little white fuzzballs and, and those are the baby seals. And you circle around, you finally land and we're all high-fiving in our mittens and, and uh, just very excited. Once we got out and started walking around, you know, I let everybody have their space out there. And, and we had some ex-seal hunters and pilots with us to help guide. And, and um, there was nothing I could really guide. I, I was mostly just amazed watching the um, seals, watching the environment, but also watching the people and how excited they were. After this whole experience, we got back in the helicopters and we lift off and we start heading back. And I look at the two sisters and I'm knee to knee to them in the back of a helicopter. And they've got tears in their eyes. They're crying so happy that they've gotten a chance towards the waning years of their lives to yeah. see these baby seals. That was the moment that I realized this is what I want to do. I want to take people out here, not just out here, but into these areas to see this wildlife, to see places that are so important to them. And um, of course, you know, being out in nature was important to me, but the excitement was watching how important it was to them. How did you then figure out where you were going next, where the next trips would be, where where people wanted to replicate that experience? Yeah, well, I, that's a great question. I um, From that first year where we had 300 and something people go see baby seals, from there, I, I would talk to the guests. And when people are on these sort of trips, what they do is they enjoy the trip, but they also talk about other trips. And one yeah. of the things people had talked about was the polar bears of Churchill. And uh, I don't know if you know much about Churchill, but it's about a thousand miles north of Winnipeg. And there's a polar bear migration in that area where it was about that time around 900 polar bears would come through the town in every fall waiting for the bay to freeze so that they could get back out on the ice to hunt seals. And so, you know, people would talk about that on the trip and they told me more about it. So I went back to the New York Public Library and found a magazine called Specialty Travel Index that had some information about it. Called some people up in Churchill to to find out how to set up those trips and those trips existed already. We weren't the first ones to do that. So I found some local folks that would charter me one of their vehicles to go out and I got some hotels and and I added that and it was great because the baby harp seal trips were in March and these were in October and November. So I could do two of these things in a year and you know have a, a full year worth of business. As you look back now through the last few decades, any other trips that are most memorable moments that you've had? Oh gosh, yeah. I mean, I'm sure. Oh, man. Feels like every trip would be. So how do you start to think about, yeah. you know, the superlative most memorable? Yeah, it's, it's funny you say that. So many of them have to do with observing our guests and what it means to them. And uh, this experience happened to me. I, I was in a, um, on a trip with a, uh, we used to have these small buggies. We put nine people on the small one and we had these, we called them our research adventures. And we had this professor from University of Saskatchewan, Malcolm Ramsey, and we would fund the research by having guests on board. And he would get on the back of the rover and he would take out a dart gun and dart a polar bear with our guests there. And so our guests are like, oh, this is great. And they get out and be able to look at the bear. But, uh, you know, on that same trip when I'm out there with them, we had an 80 something year old fellow who was uh, had had been in Normandy, he had stormed Normandy. And I was just so impressed with the guy. And I, I end up in a helicopter with the guy. This is 1990 or 91. And we go out to the female bear's denning area. And it's one of the options that we, we offer people. And you can actually crawl inside 
an unoccupied polar bear den. It's just fascinating because they build them into the side of these little hills. So we get out of the helicopter and this fellow had Coke bottle glasses. He didn't see very well and he didn't hear very well and he couldn't walk that well. But I helped him through waist high snow, a hundred yards up to this den and we crawled inside the den together. And then we came out, you know, and it's cold and I walk him back and get him back in the helicopter. And he told me that was the most fun he'd had since he was a kid. And I thought about it, that, that was 75 years ago. And to be able to present that to this gentleman was really a meaningful moment for me. But that a lot of my uh, inspiration comes from our guests. Order of magnitude now, how many trips and travelers do you guys have in a given year or, or however you kind of look at it? Yeah, about 10,000 guests. Average group size is around 10 or 11 people. So, you know, um, you've got about, uh, you know, a thousand departures happening at any given time. You might have two departures out there or 25 departures out there, you know. Yeah. How would you pitch Natural Habitat today? Yeah, well, you know, Natural Habitat Adventures is a nature travel company that focuses on getting people as close to wildlife and wild areas as they can possibly be. You know, you can imagine an African safari and going really farther afield in Africa to have your own personal moments watching the migration or watching lions and their young or sitting with a family of mountain gorillas. Those personal experiences, we facilitate that with the, our guides who are um, serious trained naturalists and, and help people experience nature in an authentic way. But of course, it's comfortable. It's not inexpensive because we often are using things like helicopters or small fixed wings or things to get farther afield. But it's, you know, there, there's some, um, our safari camps are all, quote, luxury camps. We have them everywhere from Botswana up to the Arctic Circle um, in Greenland, where we built one into the rock, you know. And those are the experiences that we bring people. Yeah. I just read the cover letter to your 2023-2024 catalog earlier this week. And it really resonated. I think as someone who read a lot of travel writing to cope with the last few years and the lack of experiences through the pandemic, I found your kind of take on travel as a really emotionally provocative. And I'm wondering if you could talk about travel writ large, and then we can talk a little bit more specifically about the kinds of travel experiences that you guys focus on specifically after that. Yeah, I, I appreciate this question because I do think travel is important for people, but moreover, for our guests, nature is important. And I think that's true for nearly all humans, that nature is important. Getting outside is important. I mean, the endless number of studies that talk about how nature can be healing and soothing. And, you know, if you don't have that, you're missing out on something. So, I mean, I, I believe there's brain science to nature. So yeah. when you when you consider that um, travel is important, nature is important, and if we can marry those two with a purpose, and that's really important, that it's with a purpose. So our mission statement is conservation through exploration. And when you go to these places, when we take people to see mountain gorillas, we're leaving money with local folks. That's vital, you know? Yeah. Local folks are incentivized to protect their sustainable natural resources. And you sit with a mountain gorilla. Let me tell you, you sit with a mountain gorilla, you can't go home and go, nah, it's not important. We don't need to protect those creatures. You go home and say, I got to help protect these animals. Same with polar bears and, and when you're snorkeling with sea lions in the Galapagos or you protect that that you love and you only love what you know. And uh, our job is to let people know what these places are about. Yeah. That's really beautifully put. It feels like I certainly remember the buzzwords around ecotourism 
pre-pandemic. But it does feel coming like, like coming out of the pandemic and the resurgence of travel that there is a little more focus and development on smarter tourism, cleaner tourism, eco-tourism, however you want to phrase it. I'm curious what you think about the industry and what you've seen over the last couple of decades, like how that has evolved. Yeah, well, I mean, listen, our goal is to change the way people think about travel. And I've been saying that for 20 years. And, you know, sometimes it occurs to me, holy crap, it's actually changing. People do think differently now about travel. Whereas 20 years ago, it was consumptive bus tours and, and so on. Now it's shifting towards smaller groups, more meaningful travel, more thoughtful itineraries, more personal experiences within that, and um, more purposeful in how they have an impact, a positive impact on the places they visit. And it makes sense that it took a while for people to understand that it's easy to love things to death. It makes sense that people didn't understand the benefits of travel. They, they thought that it was one way. I go there, I learn something, I get something out of it, and I leave. But the truth is, if it's two ways, it's more meaningful for you. You feel better about your travels. So it has shifted. And I think it's on steroids now that after COVID, I do think people are coming out of COVID saying, I'm going to do something great. I'm going to do something big. Um, what I do will have an impact. And we see it. I mean, uh, it's sort of gone crazy, this revenge travel, but it's also getting out into nature that's been important for people. Well, it's it's the confluence, right? Like. I'm significantly more conscientious of my own personal bucket list when we've all lived through an era where mortality was part of the day-to-day news cycle in a much more real and scary way. I think that does probably have multiple imp- impacts and implications, one of which is, yeah, I'm, gonna, I'm not going to wait forever to take the trip that I've always wanted to take. And I want to, that experience to be one that is reflects positively for me, but also for the world. Like I think we're much more conscientious of that, I hope. Along with the conversation around travel comes a component of ethical business practice conversation. You hear, you know, a lot of folks very thoughtful about it. It seems like even the big companies are serious about it. If every time you buy a plane ticket, you're you're getting that option to buy an offset. That was not part of the the travel my travel budget ten years ago. That's for sure. Yeah, no, it's true. I mean, so so uh, Natural Habitat was the world's first hundred percent carbon neutral travel company in two thousand. Yeah, I was going to ask you about this. It was something I'm really proud of and that we, that we did this. So at that point, I don't know how many guests we were moving, but we were offsetting everything in our operation and um, we felt really proud. But the truth is, without other companies jumping on board, it really was meaningless. And now when you think about it, it's all about influence. So yes, we need to leave money with locals and help to influence their ideas of what it means to protect their environment and, and their sustainable resource. But also we need to influence the traveler right? So that they go home and feel like we want to protect. And then we need to influence the other companies, the entire industry. We can't do this alone. And the truth is, I mean, we're not the only people doing it. There's other great companies out there doing this stuff. And so I don't want to take credit for all of it, you know, that we're the guys doing it. But that particular thing, we were the first on on that, but with the idea that let's help other companies do it. And when we did that, some other adventure companies jumped on board and then some more, and then some small adventure cruise companies like Limblad did it. And now you get onto United Airlines, you can offset. Yeah. How great is that? How great is that that United Airlines does that? And hopefully we can, you know, we can, obviously the best would be if we could reduce. It's very tough with with airlines. Yeah. You actually, you mentioned this twice now, and I, I want to make sure we spend a couple of minutes on it. This notion of making sure there's an economic benefit 
to the local communities. And in, inherent, I think, and in correct me if I'm wrong, is this notion that like we have to be willing to to ascribe real value to our biodiversity. Like we have to say this is worth something. This forest is worth something. This island is worth something. This water is worth something. And so we're going to spend money to protect it. And it seems like, again, there's at least a, a conscientiousness about this, a movement about this. I had a really interesting conversation actually with the folks at the New York Stock Exchange who are building this natural asset class to try to develop an opportunity for the institutionalization of biodiverse resources so that people can, you know, outsiders can invest to protect those resources. And that money can then be spent in local communities as a mechanism to, to ascribe real value. And I think it's just a fascinating trend and one that's like really powerful and has real awesome implications, broadly speaking, if we can figure out how to harness that. Yeah. Uh, yeah. So I think you're talking about two things, really. There's the philanthropic end of it where people are putting their money towards protecting areas. And it, so, you know, you do need the money for that. But, you know, moreover, what NADHAB's uh, about is the, um, uh, on the local level, is to monetize nature. I know it sounds terrible, doesn't it? Monetize nature. But there's a value. People have to eat. The first time I went to go see mountain gorillas was 1990 for my honeymoon. And uh, it was a crazy adventure then in 1990 in Rwanda. But, you know, we go there and, and we see how proud these people are of the, the mountain girls. And they've got paintings of silverbacks on the side of their little shops and things. And they've never seen a silverback themselves, but they are very proud of it because it influences them economically. The visitors yeah. are buying Cokes or whatever it is, you know. The economic reality is they need, they had nine babies to every mother in Rwanda. There's an overpopulation problem. These people have to eat. And so they're going to move into the gorillas area to trap, you know, impala or whatever they're going to trap. The gorillas are going to get caught in these snares and they're going to get killed. How do you keep those folks from going in there is you get money to them in another way, tourism. The reality is that um, the local people, local wildlife, local habitats, it's all symbiotic. You know, it all goes hand in hand. Yeah. I mean... It is the confluence of the philanthropic dollar going to protection, but also the capitalist dollar being useful in ways that say this trade-off is worth money to us, uh, and and this is a beneficial trade-off to society or to the community or to the world. NetHub is really active with a bunch of community partners. I'm hoping you could just give us a landscape. But you've got global nonprofit partners. You're active in it seems like hundreds of local communities. How do you look at local community and and global community engagement? Yeah, it's, it's funny you, you ask about that because at one point we weren't very good at it up until, let's say, 2001 or two. We, we were um, giving philanthropic uh, donations to small organizations around the world, whether it's to fund uh, wolf tracking collars or something to study monarch butterflies or whatever. But we didn't have the resources to really check on these organizations to make sure the money was going the right place and so on. And then in came WWF. We started working with them on some trips and eventually made an exclusive partnership with them. And so they actually, a lot of their resources go, are, is distributed to small organizations. They don't take it all themselves for scientific projects. A lot of them go to small organizations. So they know what they're doing in the philanthropic area. We didn't, but they were also running trips and they don't know how to run trips. So we've made this great partnership where they handle the donations and send money out and we make donations. Our guests make donations to WWF and they distribute it. 
and then we run the trips. Now, since then, you know, we have gotten back into a lot of the um, grassroots organizations that are important to our guides, to our field staff, to our office. And so we do a lot of that stuff. A lot of it has to do with local people, though, I, I want to say. Right. Schools, taking kids out into nature. You know, a lot of times we'll take these kids out to go see this stuff. And, and that helps influence them to think of their local environment as a beautiful natural resource to be protected versus something that is consumptive or consumable. We now do both of those things and we really enjoy that part of it. And we have the resources to be really involved in them more rather than just send money and hope it goes to a good spot. Right. You have a, a seems like a million other awesome initiatives that that are focus on doing good or, or serving the world for the better. I read this and I just can't wrap my head around it because it's so cool, but also so monumental. The Zero Waste Adventure. Give us like a bit about that. Because the other thing that's so fascinating about it is you've kind of open sourced this approach to sustainability among the industry. And I think that's a, a, such a unique thing. It sounds like similar to what you did with, with your initial move to be fully carbon neutral. But talk to us about that Zero Waste Adventure initiative, but also how you thought about it as something that could be potentially better for the entire industry to learn about and figure out with you. Yeah, it, it, it was a fun thing. Um, we have a chief sustainability officer, Court Whelan, who's got a PhD in monarch butterflies and ecotourism, a great degree he's got. But he uh, came up with this concept, I believe it was him and some of our guides, and that we would run a trip to Yellowstone with no waste. Everything would be either compostable, recyclable, and so on. Now, we did end up with one mason jar filled with waste after a eight-day trip with 15 people, I think it was, or 12 guests plus three guides. Because um, over the years, we'd seen how many bags of garbage we were collecting, even though we, we used reusable napkins and, and things. Our suppliers would hand us lunch boxes that were, you know, not recyclable. Or, and so it was a reminder to us that we've got to get our suppliers thinking about this. And here's what happened with it is the suppliers took it upon themselves to, to say, well, oh, this was great. Yeah, we got the recycled versions. We're going to use those going forward. Or, or we've got reusable versions. We're going to use those going forward. And those were just the suppliers we used in the Bozeman, Jackson, Cook City sort of area. But then we got so much PR from this thing that we got calls from all over the country. How do we do this? How do we do that? That's really yeah. cool. We're going to just want you to know we moved over to this and, and so on. You know, I have the Marriott's in, in Alaska got rid of their styrofoam, just things like that. Um, so this, this influence thing is really, really important. Do we think we can run zero waste trips? No, I, I think that's an impossibility right now on an ongoing basis. But it is something that um, has, uh, we've learned a lot from. We've reduced from there. And we're now going out to try and set up our, uh, some more of them in different areas that'll continue to help us learn and help locals learn. Yeah. As you look at, look at your strategic plan for the rest of the year, for next year, or look at your calendar for trips ahead, what are you most excited about? More of the same. I do get asked that a lot. Um, you know, as we grow, um, some people say, well, Ben, well, why do we have to grow so much? Or why do you have to grow so much? And, you know, I mean, there's, a, we have a lot of constituents. You know, we've got our employees, of course. We have shareholders. We've got local people. I mean, if we grow, we can bring more revenue to the local people. Some of these people now, I know their children are, work I, I grew up with them in, the in our 20s doing this, and now their children work with us, you know. So we need to grow because if we didn't grow as a company, we would be meaningless. We would have no relevance. The other companies, the, the bus tour companies wouldn't look at 
companies like us and say, well, they're, they're not a threat. So why should we start to think more sustainably? But as we have some sort of volume, like, we're, we're taking some travelers from them. And yeah. they're starting to think the right way. And I'm happy about that. And the hope is that those companies then raise the bar and then we have to raise it again and they raise it again. Most recently, we released our first um, electric safari truck. The tricky thing about this is we have a whole recharging station that's solar so that it's a remote one. Because it's pretty easy to do when you're on the grid at a safari lodge right. on the grid. But when you have a remote camp, it's pretty challenging. And then taking it through water and things like that, pretty pretty tough. But we got that um, going after 18 months of, of work. Um, and our hope is to be able to influence other companies on that too and get to our second, third, fourth vehicle like. Yeah, we'll make sure to put that, that in the notes because I was staring at that going, that is so cool. <laughs> As an explorer, what are the big mysteries or things that you think are still out there for folks to discover? Well, it's funny. I I, um, I don't think of myself as that much of an explorer, but then I go back and see my buddies from New Jersey and whatnot, and, and they're like, well, where were you last? I'm like, oh, I'm not doing that much. Oh, last week I was in Tanzania, which I was, you know. Um, so I do get a chance to, to go to some pretty cool things. But I don't think of it necessarily as new places to go. I think of uh, it as it's new for that person, right? When you talk about the mountain gorillas as just an example, I'd been twice already and I went um, last year um, with my brother and two close friends for my big birthday. And I was out there and I mean, I, I went to tears um, out there and after climbing for six hours to go see these gorillas and looking at the volcanoes and I'd even been there before and it was a new experience for me. And so the way I look at it is every guest, it's new for them. And so let's make that an expedition that feels like it's a real discovery because it is, it's a discovery for them. As you look at what you've built, what do you see as the potential legacy for the company? Well, the, the hope is that again, we influence others. And, uh, you know, it, it sounds as though I'm saying we're the only ones doing it right. And that's just not the case. There are other companies that are doing great stuff. And, and it's just re really great to be a part of that. But when it comes to nature travel, um, you know, we just want to be able to influence others and keep raising the bar. As a matter of fact, one of our core ideologies is raise the bar on conservation. It's not be sustainable and tread lightly in the places you go. It's raise the bar. So others raise the bar again, which means we have to raise the bar because you do, you do need everybody pulling in this direction. And and that's my hope is that, uh, you know, that, that that happens. If that happens, there won't be a real legacy for natural habitat. It'll be a legacy for our industry. Yeah. And for all of us who, who are who are travelers, hopefully. Yeah. 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 Right. The nature travelers, but the travelers who want a little more purpose or meaning in what it is that they're doing. Yeah. Where can folks find out more? Where can they uh, learn more? Or where can they go shop for their next adventure? Um, well, yeah, I mean, you go to www.nathab.com. Uh, and, you know, we've got about, uh, oh, somewhere around 80-something destinations around the world from Southern Africa up to the high Arctic to China to visit pandas to the Galapagos Islands to snorkel with penguins and sea lions. And um, we have Europe trips, um, too. I mean, that's a sort of a, a little newer for us. Um, over the last 10 years, we've really built up our European presence because there's so much incredible nature through Europe that actually needs protection because of the population yeah. of that area. So really cool things in Scotland and, and uh, Iceland, even the Cotswolds, wonderful place, believe it or not, for 
nature viewing and birds and gardens and, and so on. So, you know, uh, I encourage people to give nature travel, you know, um, a look-see next time they're thinking, of, I got to get out of here. And I can say categorically, having just, like I said, flipped through the catalog this week, if you have a bucket list trip, it is almost certainly going to be offered somewhere in that catalog. So we'll make sure to put all that stuff in the in the show notes. Thank you so much for taking the time today. I think there's a whole lot of folks that love travel and love nature and, and, and love the idea of what you guys do. So thanks for all you do. And thanks for taking the time to talk to us today. Well, thank you, Connor, for shining a spotlight on, on this unique, quirky, wacky segment of the industry. I appreciate it. A huge thanks to Ben and the whole team at Natural Habitat for this amazing conversation. You can learn more about Natural Habitat and their newest trips by visiting nathab.com. That's N-A-T-H-A-B.com. The episode is produced by Will Gatchel and Jeff Rock, executive produced by me with editing from Reasonable Volume. Special thanks to Consensus Creative Director Kate Tucker, Greg Harrigal, and strategist Patrick Gallagher. Consensus and Conversation can be found on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, YouTube, or wherever you listen. If you've enjoyed this episode, please leave a like or rating. It really helps us out. If you're interested in telling your story as a guest or just want to stay in the know, connect with me on LinkedIn. Consensus in Conversation is a podcast by Consensus Digital Media, produced in association with Reasonable Volume. All right, we'll see you next week.